Well, God bless you folks. Uh, tonight we're going to do another super duper passage of Bible verses. And uh, for tonight, I have uh, Ludmila Boring to thank for the great passage that we'll look at this evening. I'll, I'll say a few things about Ludmila. She asked me not to embarrass her, and I make no promises I can't keep. <laughs> so I met Ludmila a number of years ago in Russia. Uh, our church sent uh, some of us privileged folks on a missions trip, and we went to Russia and had a marvelous experience. The openness to the gospel was just profound. And Ludmila was one of our Russian translators. And so not only did I get to meet Ludmila then, more importantly, she got to meet her husband, the wonderful George Boring, who is now with the Lord. Uh, I've met few men with a missionary heart like George Boring. And so Ludmila has become an American citizen years ago. And here she is, a member of Sagemont Church. And what's more, a very serious student of the Word of God. So Ludmila, thank you for uh, the passage tonight. It's this one. It's a, it's a tough one. Look, Matthew 18, 18. Truly, I say to you, the Lord is speaking, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Ludmilla's good question is, what does it mean? So as has become our custom, we don't want to look just to this super-duper Bible verse. We want to look to the context to get a better feel for what's happening. And so in order to do this, uh, let's back up just a few verses to verse 15, which says, if your brother sins, uh, brother not in the biological sense, in the spiritual sense, if your brother or sister, if your fellow Christian sins, uh, here's the instruction, go. Take the initiative, take action, don't wait for somebody else. If a fellow believer sins, go. If you're aware of it, the buck stops with you. Go and do what? Show him or her, his or her fault. Do it in private, you see, in private. And if he listens to you, this is good news. This is the desired outcome. You have won your brother. Now, folks, you can see, uh, even by looking just to this verse, you can get a better idea what the context is. The context of verse 18 is uh, church discipline. And this is famously known to be a, a passage, a key passage on the difficult topic of church discipline. If there's wrongdoing in a church, members have a responsibility to respond to the wrongdoer privately and in a loving way with a view not towards hurting that person, but winning that person back into the fold. So the fact that this verse implores this action implies that it is necessary at times. Why? Because though we're redeemed ones, um, the capacity in us to sin has not yet been totally dealt with. You know this, right? So the penalty of sin, totally dealt with. One day, the presence of sin, totally dealt with. 
but right now, the presence of sin, not totally dealt with. That's why a great one like the Apostle Paul could say, I'm really troubled because the very thing I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And what I want to do, I don't do. So here's a struggling believer. So folks, sadly, we used to be just flesh. Uh, now we're still flesh, but an ingredient has been added to it, and that is the very Spirit of God. So before, we had no choice but to be uh, mastered by our fleshly inclinations. Now we have a choice. We could actually we could, uh, uh, be under the influence of the flesh or under the influence of the spirit. And sometimes we make the wrong choices. When that happens in a local body, and it just does, uh, other members of the body are, are not to look away, not to gossip, not to do nothing. According to this text, uh, the one who finds out about a sinning brother or sister has a responsibility prayerfully to go to that person with a view towards winning that sinning brother or sister back into right relationship, fellowship uh, with Almighty God. So Jesus makes it clear here. Tell the sinning brother we are aware of his fault. And so it says you, you, you should show him his particular uh, fault. And now why, why do you go to him in, uh, in private? Well, Maybe you don't have the facts right, for one thing. <laughs> so before you take it further, before you publicize things, before you indict a person, maybe you're just not, maybe you're just off on, on things. And so that's why the exhortation is to go privately to that person to discuss uh, things. Uh, and furthermore, we are to do this with gentleness and graciousness just the way you and I would like to be treated if we were the one being visited. And it may even be necessary to approach the sinning brother or sister more than once. I notice that a lot of times when people read this passage, they think, well, we'll do step A once. If there's no response, we turn up the burner and we go to step B. You'll see step B in just a second. But I'm not sure that's the case. Every situation requires uh, wisdom and prayer and patience, and so you may need to go back to that person more than once to have ongoing uh, discussions. Once again, oftentimes we think this exhortation is for the professionals in the church, but I'm not finding that. You'll see in the passage, it's really for believers. We're supposed to take care of one another. So you might say, is this something for little old me? Yeah. Uh, according to the text, it is. We have a responsibility to help one another down the road. That's one of the purposes of being in a local church family. That is to hold each other accountable. Once again, notice that the goal is hopefully to win the brother, the erring brother or sister back into right relationship with Almighty God. The goal is not to win an argument. It's to win that person's heart. I love this quotation I found as I was studying, by Brian Bell. Our attitude should not be that of a policeman out to arrest a criminal, but rather that of a physician seeking to heal a wound in the body of Christ, a wound that will spread sickness and death if left alone. So can, can you see the attitude with which we are to go to a sinning brother or sister? Again, it's a private kind of a thing, the effort being to win the brother uh, back. 
and this is to be done after uh, prayer. And uh, you could seek the counsel of another one or two godly people, but you really don't need to be telling too many more. Uh, that looks like prayer, but it's really called gossip. So I would be I would be careful. Knowledge of one's sin should be kept to the smallest group possible uh, at this particular uh, step. Smallest group possible. And why is that? Well, if you spread uh, too much about this sinning brother, and let's say that brother or sister then repents, that person will never feel comfortable in the local body again, thinking everyone, is, everyone knows my business. Everyone is looking at me as this rebellious person, which I was, but I've repented. So you see, you don't, wanna, you don't want to have someone be too self-conscious. That's why you want to limit the people who intervene uh, here. Now, if a fellow believer's sin is acceptably dealt with at this level, uh, verse 15, if he or she repents, the matter is over and done with. That's it. We don't have to read verse 16. <laughs> However, if this fellow believer does not listen to you, refuses your gracious invitation for he or she to repent of sin, uh, if that person, in fact, tells you, mind your own business or something like that, is the matter over? Uh, the answer is no. Uh, we can't stop in our efforts to win that person quite so soon. The matter is to be taken to the next step, and here's the next step, uh, verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. That's a, a little bit of a throwback to the Old Testament where the veracity or truthfulness of something was confirmed by two witnesses. And so the Lord is speaking in this case to his Jewish disciples, and so they understood this. So if uh, verse 15 didn't get you the desired result, then uh, implement verse 16, which involves continuing to go to reach out to this person, but this time not alone. It says with two or uh, three. Why is that? Well, if the sinning brother or sister won't listen to you, maybe he will if you go with two or three others. I, I don't know. It's worth a shot. Also, it's good to have a couple of other believers there with you to verify what was said and what was not said. Have you ever had a conversation with someone repeated to another person and you feel misrepresented? You say, oh, I didn't say that. Well, now it's your word against that person's word. Therefore, it's good to go because this is so uh, potentially volatile. Therefore, it's good to go in dealing with volatile issues, not alone at this point, but with two or three uh, others so that there can be a little more objectivity. By the way, those who you go with can be church leaders, but need not be. There's nothing in the text that says it has to be a pastor or a deacon who goes with you. It surely could be, but it, but it doesn't have to be. Well, what person does it have to be? Well, someone you're comfortable with, someone who's mature, someone who's godly, someone who has wisdom, uh, somebody who's filled with the very spirit of God. That's the, those are the kinds of people you want to invite to to join with you. Again, as with the first step, this second step is not necessarily 
a one-visit thing. Okay, we visited. Three of us went to this person, didn't get a desired result. It's over. No, not necessarily. I was talking to Ludmila briefly before we gathered together, um, and I, I apologized to her because, uh, first of all, I really enjoyed studying the text and saw some things, but it raised a lot of questions I don't have answers to. So I admitted to Ludmila, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm not going to be able to answer all the questions. And she's a very gracious person, so that's, that's no problem. Uh, but, but, but that's uh, one of the reasons, I think, why we have questions is, notice, God does not cover or address every particular situation. It, it's specific. We saw step one. We saw step two. But there's lots of questions that are not spelled out. And I think that's because God leaves it up to the local church. Every, every situation is different. One size doesn't fit all. Therefore, God wants people to, to very diligently pray and seek wisdom in determining what to do in keeping with these broad strokes. So what if, in spite of one's best efforts, this step also doesn't work. What if the sinning brother or sister even now refuses to listen what is said, refuses to repent? Well, you're not done yet. There is now a further step that has to be taken, and it's given to us in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you, this is strong language, as a Gentile and a tax collector. Holy Toledo. While I was studying this, I was thinking, I don't like Ludmila. <laughs> I was really having a good time. I was, I was watching The Voice, and that's really easy. And then I went to study this, and this is really difficult. So what does this mean? Well... Let's give it our best shot. The Lord has established in a church, do you agree with this? Leaders whose responsibility is not to lord things over the flock, but to take the lead in serving the flock. Designated, called out ones, recognized by the church, um, pastors, deacons, others. Uh, that's the way every local church is, is organized. Their job is to watch over and protect the flock, guard its doctrine, you know, those kinds of things. And the role of those leaders, furthermore, so we read in places like Hebrews, is to be honored and respected. Why? Uh, because it's God's idea, because he established all of this stuff. Therefore, I believe, you, you don't have to accept this, but as I wrestled with this text, I believe that the matter, when it says, then take it to the church, I think the matter should first be brought to the duly uh, authorized leaders of the church before you, before you go on Facebook. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> that just doesn't, that doesn't help anybody for crying out loud. So go to the leaders of the church, whatever the local church polity is. Uh, ours is a baptistic policy. Other churches have polity. Others have different forms of governance. In this church, there are pastors, there are deacons, so on and so forth. You don't have to go to all of them, but I think you should pick out a few before you take it <laughs> broadly to the, 
to the church. You can get guidance and get counsel and so on and uh, so forth. So um, uh, they need to speak with you to the one not hearing the words of those who've already gone to that sinning brother or sister. And they need to add their own loving yet firm uh, words of concern for the erring brother. So um, I think this could be seen to be the first step in what it means when it says, tell it to the church. It's not the last step, but it's the first step. So before we have a, you know, a quarterly business meeting and someone stands up and says something like, hey, you know, uh, let me tell you something about Don Watson right over there. Ooh, I don't know. I know there's lots you could tell about Don. That's not the point. But, but that is not the right environment in which to do it. Let's say you really had concern about a, a brother in sin. Don't do it in meetings. Uh, visit with the church leadership first and um, protect yourself. Maybe get a little pooled wisdom. And if you don't like all the leaders in the church, and, and why should you? I, I, <laughs> I mean, I don't. So, um, I mean, it's, it's just, no, I, I mean, really? You like all the leaders in this church? Wow, you have lower standards than I do. Uh, it's, I respect all the leaders, but I don't personally like all of them. Uh, I mean, I, I, was that like a surprise to you? <laughs> well, let me tell you something about the other leaders. No, no, I, I'm not kidding. But what I'm saying is, don't make it hard on yourself. Uh, each of us has a, we're drawn to certain leaders more than others. Go to the ones you're drawn to. That's okay just to make sure you're not rushing to judgment. So I think that would be a good first step in what it means to tell the church. Now, if the person still doesn't listen to the leaders of the church who you've gathered together, uh, then they may need to, in some manner, inform the church family, the entire church family. This is very difficult to do, but I'm afraid it needs to be done. Now, when that happens, if that happens, there's no requirement that every sordid detail be revealed to the church at large. Remember, you don't want to uh, destroy a person. You, you want to provide always an atmosphere conducive to, to repentance. So only those things that are necessary to be shared with the body should be shared in order to give them an a clear enough idea of the seriousness of the infraction that has been committed by this brother or sister and to communicate to them that attempts have been made to win the brother back. Uh, you can spell out, we, we applied Matthew 18. This person went privately and then went with two or three others and then some of the church leaders met with this person. You know, all of that is what you would want to be made available to the church body. Now, if the sinning person refuses even to hear from the church, then there's even one more step that has to be taken. And at this point, before the next step, things cease to be a matter of calling that sinning brother to repentance. Now it becomes a matter of protecting the church body and its spiritual health and well-being. So I call your attention um, to this um, uh, phrase. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you 
as a Gentile and a tax collector. So what does that mean? Now, the word Gentile is variously translated. You may have a Bible that says heathen. Does anyone have that? Heathen. Oh, you got that marking? So that's legitimate. It's either Gentile or, or heathen. Don't be offended by this. It's not meant to offend non-Jews. That's not the point. Remember, in that day, the faith started with Jews. Thank God didn't stop there. You know, God is no respecter of persons. But in this day, the Jewish Messiah is addressing um, his Jewish disciples. So in referring uh, to this particular person as a Gentile, um, the Lord is essentially saying you have to regard this person as if he or she is not part of the covenant with me. That's what you have to do. So it has nothing to do with one's ethnicity. The connotation in this day is that Jews were part of the covenant. Gentiles are not. If someone refuses all these measures of church discipline, you have to regard that one, well, as if he or she is unsaved. Now, that person is not necessarily unsaved, but that one has to be responded to as if he is. Now, I want to ask you a question. How do you respond to an unsaved person? You tell me. In love? And what do you do? You seek to share truth. You seek to win that person, right? So this doesn't mean have nothing ever again to do with that person. Some churches do that. I don't think that's what it means at all. I think it means extend your hand always to that brother. But, but form your approach as if this person is not in the faith. Don't expect regenerated behavior from someone who may not be regenerated. That's kind of what it means. But then it says also as a tax collector. Whoa. Now, um, being a tax collector today, I mean, people may not like you if you are, but they will not think as ill of you today as they did in that day. Why? Because the tax collectors were Jews who collected taxes from their own people I mean, a disproportionate levy of uh, taxation put upon their own people to turn it over to the Romans, who were the occupiers, the bad guys. They were traitors, in other words. So it means you have to regard this one who's refused every attempt to win him back. Uh, you have to regard this one not just as a sinner, but as a pretty serious sinner. Why is that? Once again, at this point, the effort is not um, to elicit repentance. At this point, you must protect the body of Christ. That's why we're called the body of Christ. If one member is sick, the whole body can become infected. It doesn't mean contempt. Uh, for the person, it means at this point, the needs of the individual must give way to the needs of the corporate body. Hence this exhortation uh, given here. So when someone makes a profession of faith in Christ, but then refuses to turn from his sin, even when the church calls him to do so, that person has then placed himself in a category of sinfulness that is very sinful and very dangerous to the body. That's why the Lord uses such strong language here. Regard that person as a Gentile, someone not even part of the covenant, and as a tax collector, someone who really has seriously 
sinned. Now, this step, bringing the matter to the church, as you can understand, is intensely serious and never should be taken lightly nor rushed into. However, if I'm reading this text correctly, there are times when it must be done. I wish I was reading this incorrectly, because who wants to participate in this? I don't, but we have to, if you believe the Bible is God's word. So this means at times we have to, as I mentioned, treat a sinning person as if he or she is an unbeliever, whether he or she is not. Now, we're not placing a judgment on the authenticity of their salvation. We're simply responding as we would to an unbeliever. And once again, you answered correctly, firmly, sternly, with limitations, with bounds, with guidelines, but with love, with prayer, and with the hope that that person would be one into a right relationship uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. So at this point, all contact with that person, as I mentioned, is not forbidden. No, no, no. But we aren't to relate to that person in a business-as-usual way, as if everything is normal. Let's just press on. Buddy-buddy level, nothing is different. No, no, no. That person has redefined the relationship, and you have to simply respond to it. So any contact with that person, and there can be contact, um, has to sort of include this sentiment. We love you. And we want you back in the fellowship of the church. But we cannot condone what you are doing. And we cannot enjoy fellowship together until you genuinely repent. That has to be the ongoing kind of a message that's given. It can't just be, hey, let's do coffee. It could. Let's have coffee so that you could speak into the person's life and lovingly try to persuade the person to repent, but it can't be buddy, buddy type stuff. So we are not given in this passage, as I mentioned, specific instructions about every possibility. And that's because I think God wants us to take it so seriously that we have sleepless nights in which we wrestle with this. It never should be rushed into as if we have it all figured out. So now I have stalled as long as I could. Now we get to Ludmila's verse here, Matthew 18, truly I say to you, the Lord is still speaking, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bounded. Isn't that interesting? Whatever you bind on earth now, it's as if it's already bound in heaven. See, see the words? And um, whatever you bind on earth now, present tense, shall have been bound in heaven. It's as if whatever this means, whatever... You do, whatever you bind here, it's as if in heaven it's already done. Not only that, whatever you loose here, uh, uh, once again, shall have been already loosed in heaven. Ludmilla's really good question. What? What is spoken about here? What's, what's up? Well, please remember the context. Context is the key to proper interpretation of super-duper Bible verses. The Lord Jesus has given in the context, he's given the church a process, a step-by-step -step process to follow in addressing the sins of its members. If sin has been found, the Lord says that what we, the church, binds, that is, 
what sins we have identified, labeled as sins, and addressed as such, those sins will be bound in heaven. What we bind as being infractions of biblical values and truth, what we, after an investigation, call not a mistake, but a blatant sin, when we make that pronouncement upon it, God says he will so confirm it when it is done scripturally and uh, in accordance with the accepted polity of a local church and through its duly appointed leadership, God says you ought to be careful but don't be so sheepish and reluctant. I'm telling you, if you go about this prayerfully, seeking counsel, patiently, graciously, doing the best you can, I'm telling you, I'll put my stamp of approval on it. A sin you bind as sin, God says, it, it'll be bound as a sin in heaven. And the opposite is true. If you, after your investigation, look into something and find out that a, an alleged sin was not a sin at all, you loose it. You let it go. God says, I'll confirm that decision as well. Whoa, that's a big deal. Now, this is confusing to us, but please remember who the Lord is addressing. He's addressing Jews. These terms are terms that were very familiar in Jewish courts of law. Binding in a Jewish court of law meant the idea of condemning. Loosing referred to the idea of acquitting. God says when you take careful, prayerful steps to deal with a brother's sin, the action you take, if it leads to the conclusion that it is indeed sin, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. But if you, after your investigation, determine it was not a sin as alleged, uh, what you loose, in other words, on earth will be loosed in heaven. So a prisoner um, who is bound is under condemnation of the court. But a prisoner who is loosed is considered innocent by the court. Can you see what this is referring to here? That's, that's kind of the deal. So the language of binding and loosing refers to the action of the leaders of a church when they both admit members into its fellowship and when they sadly have to remove members from its fellowship. Serious business. God says, you're not going to be able to do this with confidence unless you know I stand with you. Do it. Man up or woman up. <laughs> this is your responsibility as leaders in the church. You have to determine the prerequisites for membership in a church, and you have to determine when it is called for to remove someone from membership in the church. And since this is so serious, serious and the repercussions are so great, uh, I'm telling you I'm with you in it. Now, that doesn't mean God is, 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 is with leadership of a church just because they're leaders. No, no, this presumes if the leaders consult scripture, go slow, are prayerful, uh, consider the facts and all the rest, yes, then God confirms the decision. If the leaders have an ulterior motive, if the leaders are personally offended by someone, if the leaders are threatened and all the rest, well, then the problem is you got the wrong leaders. That's a more serious problem. Now, God is not confirming the uh, carnal, uh, fleshly, ungodly decisions of leaders. This is implying 
the godly decisions of godly leaders are confirmed in heaven. Well, that is a pretty high level of authority. So why is that important? Sometimes leaders have to make decisions. And the church body is not privy to all the facts about it. Understandably so. And sometimes you cannot share all the facts about it. This goes back to what I shared earlier on. Sometimes you just can't. You can share some things, but not all things. That means church members sometimes will hold the leaders responsible for an oppressive, cruel, impetuous decision with regard to a beloved member. That happens. And what do the leaders have to do? Well, they have to cry, not harden. You, you better cry. You better, you better have sleepless nights. Uh, you better say, oh, God, I should have sold insurance. <laughs> I mean it. You go through all this stuff. That's how upsetting it should be. Uh, it should not be casual. But when all that is done, you have to remember this. And God says, I called you to this post. If you believe you've been called, if your calling to it has been recognized and confirmed by the members of the church, lead in the church. Not oppressively. No, no, no. Lead lovingly, but lead. And be prepared to take your hits. Knowing I've already confirmed your decision in heaven. That's what this kind of means. Now, um, with your permission, Ludmila, I read on. I didn't want to stop at verse 18. So uh, it really gets sticky. Good word, Marky. Sticky is good. So, so look, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who's in heaven. Uh, this verse is often taken to be a guarantee that if you can find another fellow Christian to agree with you about a request you're making of God, this says you can count on it. It's a guarantee it'll be done for you. by You can twist God's arm. So here's the deal. It's not just enough for you to pray to your father and ask for something. You need to gang up on him. You need to get two or three others. You need to say, this is what I want. Do you agree? Yes, I'll enter into agreement with you. And then you gang up. What do you think, Marky? Can you pray with me while you're in the lottery? <laughs> that actually happens. Marky gives an example. Would you pray with me that I win the lottery? Yes, I agree with you. As long as you give me part of it. Okay, thanks. It's a deal. So now God, according to this misinterpreted verse, God is obligated to answer that. But folks... You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't need to know Greek or Hebrew. You don't have to go to seminary. You now found out what the context is, right? You cannot take verse 19 out of context. It's in the context of church discipline. You know what God is saying here? If two or three of you gather together for the cause of exercising church discipline, if you agree, the bona fide leaders in the church, you agree on a course of action, and you've taken godly, prayerful steps to implement the action. It'll be done for you by your Father who is in heaven. Again, it's God saying, you feel alone, but you're not. I'm with you in this. That's what it says. Um, This whole idea of I'm entering into agreement with you 
it's a whole uh, philosophy. You see a lot of it on TV that's based on this verse. I mean, a whole school of thought. I agree with you, brother. I agree with you. Well, thank you. But I don't need you to agree with me. If I'm praying to my father in his will, I don't need your backup. He'll say yes. And if he thinks what I'm asking for is not good, he'll say no. And I don't care how many people I get to agree with me. If the father disagrees, he wins. So this whole concept of vocabulary even has emerged from a verse simply taken out of context. Can you see how serious it is? Can you see how things become church tradition? That's become a tradition in certain uh, uh, churches. And to challenge it, people would just, it's like insulting somebody's mother. When in fact, that's not what it says. The context defines the limits of what this verse says. Okay. Gets a little worse. <laughs> One more verse. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I'm there in their midst. I've heard this millions of times, preached, quoted, all the rest, by well-intentioned people. But they're wrong. Usually, this verse is invoked to encourage folks when there's a meeting at church, sparsely attended. It's a prayer meeting or it's evangelism training, you know, and just a handful of people come. The leader of the meeting feels bad for the people, so he invokes this verse. Not to worry, because the Bible says where two or three have gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. It's not what it means. What's the context? Church discipline. Where two or three sincere, godly, well-informed leaders of the church gather together in order to apply church discipline. I'm with you. That's what it says. Folks, I want to tell you something. If I come to a prayer meeting and it's sparsely attended, <clears throat> I need two or three in order for me to be sure God is with me? Can't I pray alone if no one shows up? Can you see how? Hey, I'll tell you this story. I was a little kid raised in Judaism. I was visiting my grandparents in Brooklyn, New York. I went outside to throw a ball against a stoop. That's what you do in New York. There's no fields. You throw a ball against it. It's a game. And if it bounces, you have fielders. It bounces once, it's a single. Two times, it's a double. You catch it, it's an out. The trick is to hit the edge of the step, and that thing will fly. So that's what I'm doing. I'm just a little kid. I got a baseball glove, just a little kid. There's a synagogue next door. The rabbi comes out. It's the Sabbath. It's Saturday. And, man, he's looking stern, got the beard thing going on and all the rest. He says, uh, Younger, which means young twerp. Um, what is your name? He means Hebrew's name, Hebrew name. I said, Shepsel Chaim. Isn't that a weird thing? Sounds like I just cussed at you, but that was my name. By the way, I didn't know what it meant until after I became a Christian. You know what it means? Lamb of God. Excuse me, Lamb of Life. Chaim. To life, to life, l'chaim. You know that deal from Fiddler on the Roof? I didn't even know that. 
lamb of life. But anyway, so I told him, Rabbi, here's my name. He said, uh, are you bar mitzvah? Meaning, did you, are you over the age of 13? Because at that point, you become a man. Even though you're a snotty-nosed little kid with your baseball glove. and I think I was wearing red shorts at the time. Ugly. <laughs> but still, you're like a man. Ceremonial purposes. I said, yes, Rabbi, I had bar mitzvah. Come into the shul. Shul means synagogue. We need a minion. That's a quorum. You got to have 10 men over the age of 13 before you can have a worship service. They couldn't get it going because they only had nine. So I went in there with my baseball glove, ugly red shorts. Stand there, kind of looked like those shoes. I'm just, now that I'm thinking. Oh, they're Nikes? I apologize. There you go. So, <laughs> so I went in there, you know, not exactly dressed for the occasion. Because under the guidelines of Judaism, you can't approach God unless you got 10 men. <sighs> Folks, on the way over here tonight, it was just me. No room in my car for 10 other guys, nine other guys. And I prayed, God, would you bless us tonight? If you don't bless us, we won't be blessed. That's all. I talked to him. I'm just driving. It's just, and it was a Ford. Stan, it wasn't even like a hot car. It's just a Ford. It's nothing. I got no special vestments. I got no incense. I got nothing. I have a relationship with Almighty God through Jesus' son. You could talk to him. Not in religion. You got to jump through the hoops. So this idea, thinking, <laughs> What? You got to come up with two or three in order to be assured that God is in your midst. Can you see? Here's, here's a good rule of uh, biblical interpretation. Don't make the Bible say something ridiculous. It's ridiculous to think the only way you can be assured of God's presence is you have a certain number of people. That's not what this means. It must mean something else, and context tells us what it is. When duly appointed leaders of the church have the rough responsibility of applying church discipline, and they get together so to do, God says, I'm with you. That's what it means. Okay. So I want to close with um, a letter I read by a pastor that pertains to our discussion tonight. It's... Um, uh, a little lengthy, but I think you'll appreciate it. This pastor's name is James Williams, and he's the pastor of First Baptist Church in Atlanta, Texas. Have you ever heard of Atlanta, Texas? You did? Wow, way to go, guys. I thought it's a misprint. <laughs> Atlanta, Texas. Really, there is such a place. Okay, he's the, he's the pastor of it. He's one of our own, fellow Southern Baptist pastor. And uh, he's writing something with regard to this whole church discipline thing. Here are his thoughts. From now on, these are his exact words. I thought I would share a personal story that will hopefully provide a picture of church discipline and the desired goal. I was 22 when I began pastoring a rural Texas church. I was going to seminary at the time and made the two-hour drive each weekend to make visits and attend the Sunday services. While we may have been few in number, the warmth and love from the people in the church is something I can still remember. I was in my seminary apartment one day when I received a phone call. It was a brother from the church who was married with two young children. 
I knew something was wrong as he struggled to get the words out through his weeping. His broken sentences revealed both his hurt and anger as he told me that his wife was having an affair. When he confronted her, she decided to leave him and move in with her boyfriend. I tried to minister to this brokenhearted brother, but words often seem so empty in the midst of such difficulty. We prayed together and asked God if he would restore what had already been broken. After getting off the phone with him, I knew this issue needed to be addressed. Ignoring it would keep me out of some very difficult and awkward situations, but I knew that wasn't right. God's church is to be a place where sin is dealt with in a gospel-centered way, which is incarnational and restorative. There's healing and hope in the gospel, but it comes through confession and repentance. I knew what I had to do, but I didn't want to do it. I don't like confrontation and would much rather avoid it at all cost. However, this woman, we'll call her Sarah, was in sin. That was hurting the cause of Christ and that was hurting her, her husband, her children, the whole church. If the church doesn't have enough love to step into these difficult situations with truth, then who will? I mustered up the courage to find the phone number for Sarah's new boyfriend. My hands were shaking as I called the number and asked if Sarah was there. She answered the phone and already knew what it was about. I told her I loved her. But there were some things that we needed to talk about and work through. She agreed to meet with me and another godly lady from our church, whom we both respected. As the time of our meeting drew near, fear and nervousness swelled up in me again. How can I confront and yet show love to my sister? How can I communicate that we are for her, not against her, and that this sin is not what's best for her? What if she tells me to mind my own business and just let her be happy? Sarah finally showed up and met with myself and the other godly lady. I once again made clear to her that we loved her very much, but that what she was doing was wrong. Thankfully, I did not have to convince her. The Holy Spirit had already been working on her, and it was clear that she was broken over what happened. We spoke with her and counseled with her for a while, and then we helped her map out what repentance looks like in this situation. The first step was to get out of the boyfriend's house and cut off the relationship completely. If she's not willing to do this, then it shows that her heart isn't truly repentant. Again, the Holy Spirit had been working on her, and she was uh, certainly ready to take all the necessary steps of repentance. We prayed to the Lord and thanked him for his mercy and grace, asked for his guidance for Sarah and prayed for her healing. We asked that God would be willing to restore not only Sarah, but her family as well. Over the next several months, God worked in Sarah's life. She immediately moved out of her boyfriend's house and began the process of healing in her own life. Over time, this brought about reconciliation with her husband and their family was completely reunited. By the time I left that church, there had been a complete restoration and even the birth of their third child. I realized that not all situations work out this well. I also know that there are situations where the person involved is not repentant, which is why Scripture gives us guidance on how to handle such cases. And here he invokes Matthew chapter 18. However, I hope that this story illustrates what church discipline might look like and what the desired goal is. The goal isn't to kick someone out. Rather, the goal is to restore someone who's fallen into sin. James chapter 5, verses 19 to 20 instructs us, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, 
Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. God's church is to be a place of healing for broken sinners. Unrepentant sin needs to be dealt with, but when there is confession and repentance, there's hope and healing because of the blood of Jesus Christ. All of us are prone to wander, which is why God designed his church to be a place where we look out for one another. We all have blind spots, and we need fellow believers to help keep us on the narrow path. When sin is dealt with properly, the gospel is displayed, God is glorified, and a soul is saved from death. That's the goal of Matthew 18. That's the goal of church discipline. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the church. It's your idea. Made up of imperfect, even sinful people, just like us. And we thank you. You have a provision even for us when that happens. We're so grateful to you. It's not a provision for our demise or destruction. It's for our deliverance. Church discipline is a manifestation of love and concern for a wandering brother or sister. Oh, God, in heaven, it would be wonderful if we never had to take these steps in this or any other church, but that's just not reality because of who we are. Therefore, may we at least in this place exercise church discipline the way you have instructed us in this text and with the right heart and concern for restoration of a wandering brother or sister. Thank you, O oh God, for telling us everything we need to know though it looks like you haven't seen fit to tell us everything we want to know. Even this text has given rise to many, many questions, but you've given us enough to feed on. You've made obvious what you want for us to apply. May we not be remiss in doing so here at Sagemont Church. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.